it's funny because the eating disorder just finds a way to take advantage of every little insecurity you have and make it part of the eating disorder to strengthen it. And so for me, it's been a lot of, okay, well, I am a queer person. I'm bisexual. My favorite words are fat and fuck. friends and welcome back to another episode of pickles and vodka the mental health podcast where we talk about all sorts of shit that we don't want to talk about in real life my name is christina your host and if you are new to the podcast welcome usually new episodes come out on mondays uh however today is kind of late on a wednesday and the reason that it is late is because i have anxiety And I'm also very hard on myself, and I'm not great at keeping track of time. And also, I get really self-conscious when I release these, um, or rather, when I record the intros to these. It's like, I can be talking into my iPhone just fine when I do audio journals, but then the second the big microphone comes out, I freeze up and get all self-conscious and weird. So that's why this one's late. Uh, Fortunately, I know my audience is full of people who understand that sometimes mental illness can turn you into someone you don't like. Uh, I I like to consider myself a hardworking person who can stick to things, but when my depression and anxiety flare up like they have been, I I turn into a flake who ignores texts and forgets appointments and just is not someone that I particularly like, but someone that I really need to be gentle with in order to move on. Um, So that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, Happy Pride Month! It is June 2021. Things are starting to open up again here in Seattle. I think 70% of our community is now vaccinated, which is great news. It's also a lot of pressure. I I feel like we make a lot of jokes about, like, hot girl summer, or as I like to say, shot girl summer. (laughs) Get it? Because of the vaccine. I said that to someone the other night, and they didn't understand what I was trying to say. So anyway, there's a lot of pressure to kind of go out and be this person that maybe not a lot of us feel like since we've been isolating for so long. For me, I'm definitely an introverted person. And so right now I find myself alone in this time where everyone is out with their friends and dating and whatnot. And I'm moving from Seattle in a couple months, so I don't really stand to gain anything from being in a new relationship right now. So I've just kind of been stepping back and letting everyone else have fun. But I don't know if that's particularly healthy for me right now. I think human connection is so important So with that said, I've been trying to step out of my comfort zone lately. This last week I was dog-sitting for one of my friends, and she has a motorcycle that she let me use while she was away, and I got to ride with someone that I've been wanting to ride with for a while. We got caught in the rain, and it was really fun because it reminded me that things can happen that I didn't plan for, and I can handle them. Like, I am a fun, capable person, (laughs) turns out. And I think for me, at least, I've been stuck in my eating disorder for so long. 
I just kind of forgot that I can do other things and have fun and like I'm good at other things. And I, I think one thing mental illness steals from you is your hobbies. Uh, I, I find it hard some days to remember what I ever liked and what I was good at. And um, I feel in many ways that I'm rediscovering that side of myself since I've been in treatment. And um, yeah, all that to say, as the weather gets nicer and things hopefully start opening up, maybe you can get out there a little more and start rediscovering some things that used to make you happy. Um, like I said, today is the first episode of Pride Month. Throughout the whole month, I will be showcasing interviews with LGBTQ plus guests. I think representation is so important, and um, I think it's great that our society is a little more accepting and educated these days, but there's still a lot of discrimination that happens, and a lot of efforts need to be made to promote these voices and to be an ally. I, I grew up in a really sheltered, Christian, conservative household, and so... In a lot of ways, I feel like I'm not educated enough on these issues. And so, personally, I'm, I'm trying to do better. And, I don't know, just celebrating equality and, and celebrating love is a beautiful thing. And so, excited for you all to hear the interviews that I have planned. Today's interview is with my friend Rachel that I met in treatment. She is a self-identifying fat queer woman. She talks about suffering from atypical anorexia and also she talks about being a queer woman in the church, both of which are really interesting and things that a lot of people need to hear about. So buckle up and hold tight. Oh my god, I hate myself. Um, so I'm going to jump right into that interview. Before I do, though, I just want to say, if you haven't rated or reviewed Pickles and Vodka on your podcast carrier of choice, that would mean the world to me if you did. Just giving us a five-star rating or a little note of encouragement would just mean the world for me and this little podcast. So do that if you haven't already, and I promise that's the last time I'll talk about it for now. <laughs> All right. Here is my interview with Rachel. I hope you all enjoy. Hello. I can see your face, but I can't hear no, you. I'm here. Oh my God. Hi. Hi. Oh, I'm so happy to see your face. It's been way too long and so much has happened. Yeah. So how are you? Uh, <laughs> in a nutshell. Let me start out with the most obnoxious question known to man. Um, I'm good. I'm adjusting. Um, discharged last week from treatment. Yes. So, for the listeners, we should probably say how we met. Oh yeah. Um, and who you are. <laughs> I'm doing this all out of order. So, um, we met in treatment in PHP, and I think I left like. A week or so after meeting you. Yeah, we literally knew each other for like a week. And okay, and so this whole time that I've been gone, you have been in the program doing the work and you just got out. Yeah, last Wednesday. Oh my God, how does it feel? Eh. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you've been there, you've been here. Like all the feelings of like, I'm finally free and then like, fuck, I'm finally free. <laughs> Yeah, like I'm finally free, and then reality sits in. And you're like, oh shit! Like, 
I have to adult now, like, not that you're not already adulting, but like, I now have to feed myself mm-hmm. and like do all the things on my own without having like a therapist or like therapeutic staff around for 10 hours out of the day. So yeah, it's a lot. I, I found it really challenging and I've had to practice extra self-compassion, which it's hard enough to practice self-compassion in the first place. So to give like extra self-compassion is hard. Yeah. Well, especially I think because of, you know, COVID and the pandemic treatment centers, I think everywhere in the U.S. are taking extra precautions. And so a lot of stuff that would be in person for the next level to step down, um, which is like IOP, is now online. And that's, it's just weird because it's different. Because I've been to IOP many times and it's never been virtual. And so it just feels very like, not familiar. <laughs> yeah. And I was kind of relying on like, okay, but you've done IOP before. So like when you step down, it'll be fine. But. And IOP is intensive outpatient, intensive outpatient program. And that's uh, where you have like the hour long sessions three times a week, or is it three hour long? Sessions? Um, so the one I'm in is three hours long, three times a week. But one of the hours is like dinner, like you're eating over zoom just very so weird. weird. Um, when I was going to college, I always avoided eating during class because I was on Zoom and it felt weird. Whereas like, <sighs> if you're in class in person, I'm like, I don't care if you see me with my iced coffee and whatever. Yeah. But like when it's on Zoom, it just for me, it adds that extra level of like, this is really awkward. Yeah, well, um, speaking of awkwardness, can you introduce yourself <laughs> to the <laughs> listeners? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Rachel. I'm friends with Christina. (laughs) So I'm 27, actually just got a job with a nonprofit. Congrats. So that's exciting. And currently working on some writing stuff. I want to be a writer. Hell yeah. I feel like I'm like in the fourth grade again when it's like, well, I want to be this. Dude, same. (laughs) I literally, since getting out of treatment, that's how I felt. I felt, I feel like I'm a college freshman all over again, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. And it's kind of terrifying, but it's also kind of exciting. Yeah. It like, when I say it to other adults, I feel weird. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm writing. I like want to be a writer, like full time. I want to do all the activism and social media stuff, but like I'm like not a millennial, but I'm definitely not a Gen Zer, and so like yeah. I feel awkward saying that because it feels like I'm almost too old to be saying that. But when you have you know mental illness in your teens and like young adults, you like lose a lot of years. Oh my god, I, I can relate a hundred percent. Yeah, and then when you get it back, you're like in your mid to late twenties, and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> uh, so that's how I've been feeling. Like I feel very old even though I'm not, uh, even though well, I'm not. Yeah, I know. I, first of all, you can't be old because that would make me even older. <laughs> and we can't have that kind of talk on the podcast. <laughs> um, but tell me a little bit about your history with mental illness. Cause I have only known you a little while in person and I know you, we both struggle with eating disorders and I have talked to you a lot about similar struggles we've had in the past with like our families and our experiences I'll just say yeah (laughs) yeah so 
I think something that's hard for a lot of people is to think of like kids having mental illness or showing signs Mm. of mental illness. But I had anxiety since grade school. And when I was 14, it really became obvious that there was something bigger going on. And, you know, that's when my eating disorder really started showing and struggling with self-injury. And so I don't remember like most of high school because I was so depressed, so anxious, on and off so many medications. Um, I have like specific memories of high school. uh, And then there's a lot of it where I'm just like, I don't know where those four or five years went. I couldn't tell you, like, I don't know what I did day to day. So I think that's been a big part of like me wanting to get better because I want to be able to like live my life. And, you know, I feel like I'm trying to play catch up with a lot of people because, you know, when you're ill at such a young age, you just, the system and people in general don't know how to deal with that Uh, because it's kind of painful to think about like little kids or like just 13 or 14 year olds, like being depressed and anxious and suicidal and having eating disorders. Yeah. When you were a kid, did these issues start coming up because of something you were going through at the time or do you think it was just like genetics I think for me it was a combination of all the things yeah I mean it usually is <laughs> yeah it usually is mental illness runs in my family and so thankfully my parents were aware of it so they knew how to look for it and so that's why I think I got help as soon as I did um because when it really started showing they were like no we're not doing this you know we don't want you to be like this family member that had to go through really hard time because they didn't want to get help or like immediate family didn't want to acknowledge that they were having mental health issues. And so I'm really blessed in that sense, but also like they know it because it's genetic and it runs in the family, but I'm also fat and I've been fat and kids are really cruel. They can be the sweetest thing and they can also be the meanest. And for me, it really was constant bullying Um, to the point of actually dropping out of high school uh, and just being like, I'm done with it. I'm not doing this. You can't make me go to school. Like my anxiety was so bad. So I got my GED and (laughs) did school that way and then went to college and did all the things. It sounds like you have a really non-linear path. Yeah. Something I've really had to come to terms with is I think people like to ignore things like bullying and be like, oh, that's just part of growing up. I know for myself, I've done that, uh, but it can cause, I've realized a lot of trauma, which is what I've kind of found through eating disorder treatment centers. But because there's this stereotype of, well, you haven't been to war, you're not a veteran, you've never been physically assaulted, you know, you, you don't get to have trauma. And so that's been something interesting for me to be trying to like accept and deal with. It can be little things. And when little things happen every day over and over again, they build up into bigger things. Yes. The thing is like trauma is like, oh my God, I was going to say this perfectly and I'm like missing (laughs) it. Like you can be traumatized by anything. If something traumatizes you, guess what? You have trauma. And it doesn't have to be something big either. Like, um, I know in treatment they talked about like big T trauma versus little T trauma, like trauma that we as a society deem to be like 
big and life-changing like physical assaults or you know stuff like that versus little t trauma which is i'm doing air quotes by the way in case the listeners can't see it's like <laughs> you know stuff like bullying for instance that you think it's not that big a deal but guess what it's just as legit because you're traumatized by it well and also a lot of kids are eight nine twelve fourteen like the brain's not developed at that age and they're still expected to like act like adults when they're being bullied or when stuff comes up. And that just, I think, adds to the trauma, at least in my experience of being bullied, trying to get help and then being told to act like an adult and being like, but I'm 12. <laughs> I shouldn't yeah. have to be the adult in this situation. You're the teacher. It's crazy because adults often tell kids that they're too young to do certain things or like, you know, I'll tell you when you're about that when you're older. And then when it comes to things like bullying, it's like, oh, you need to act like an adult. It's like, how are we supposed to act as 12 year olds? You know, did you find that to be super confusing? Yeah, I think I swept it under the rug, which then turned into an eating disorder. And so now, you know, being an adult, I'm like, oh, I have all this stuff I've been ignoring because in society, it's not considered a big deal, but it's been affecting me negatively for 10, 15 years now. So like, yeah. let's address it. How long before you got help for eating disorder? Well, so I started using behaviors when I was like 14 and went to treatment the first time when I was 19. Okay. So what, what did I, that look like for you? Like, what did the behaviors look like for you? I struggle with restricting really, really that is the main behavior, um, always has been, which has always been interesting when going, you know, to treatment or trying to get any kind of help as a self-identified like fat woman. There's always these issues of insurances being like, well, okay. So like not caring about the behaviors because of my body size, I have autoimmune diseases and chronic illnesses that just make weight loss really hard. And when you starve yourself for 15 years, your metabolism doesn't like that. And it just stops working, which is just like a double-edged sword. Uh, so frustrating for like me and for my eating disorder of, you know, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do air quotes, according to the eating disorder. And I'm still not losing weight. And no one believes me that I'm doing these behaviors because of the size of my body. And I really struggled with that up until this last relapse, because this last relapse for the first time, I started showing signs of like malnutrition. So lots of hair loss, brittle nails, dry skin, chronic fatigue, like all the signs that if a thin person was showing, people would be concerned, but were excused for me by like primary care doctors and all that fun stuff. For me, a big thing was, okay, my hair's falling out. I think I need to, I need to get yeah. like some kind of care um, outside of like just a regular therapist because this isn't working. Like this is scary because that never happened to me before. Were your parents in on it at that time? Like, did they know what was going on or did you feel comfortable telling them? This last time they were, uh, they actually told me we were waiting for you to tell us kind of like rehab for any kind of addiction, you know, you can't force someone to go or get help. So that was actually nice to hear. Like, okay, like my family's got my back. They are also yeah. seeing 
the signs and symptoms and behaviors that I'm really struggling with right now. So I'm glad that they had your back and still have your back, I assume. Yeah. They, I mean, they haven't always understood it, but over the last couple of years, they've been really trying. I think it's been helpful for, you know, treatment providers to be able to come with like information and education on, you know, atypical anorexia or whatever you want to call it and be like, this is what your daughter is struggling with. And here are studies and facts that and research that we can provide for you. Whereas I think, you know, even like five, six years ago, there wasn't really a lot of that. Yeah. And it was kind of like, okay, we're trusting what, you know, treatment program is saying, but there's kind of taking their word for it. And then this time around, uh, my therapist was like, no, I have this and this, and I'll send you this. And I have this PDF file. And I think that was really beneficial for them. Yeah. Information is really the best tool the families can have in this sort of instance. Um, I want to talk more about being a self-identifying fat person and struggling with anorexia because that's not talked about a lot. Yeah. How long have you been self-identifying as fat? I think maybe within the last three or four years. I think a big thing that's been helpful is the fat liberation movement on like Instagram, TikTok, all of social media, seeing people like me and bodies like me saying, I have an eating disorder and I've had one for XYZ has been really helpful. But it's also been really painful. I think recently mm. Tess Holiday came out saying, you know, she has atypical anorexia and she is getting treatment for it. And as someone in that exact same position, the backlash has been so horrible and terrifying. The comments are so I mean. Can, I made the mistake of reading it once and I went to bed crying and then saw my therapist the next day in program and cried about it all through the program because it's just a hard spot for me. I've been on fat people hate websites. I've had everything you can think of said to me. And the worst thing people ever say to me is you're taking the bed in treatment from someone who actually needs it and deserves it. Um, Jesus. You know, or, you know, you're lying to yourself. You have binge eating, which is a very valid eating disorder. Yeah. But because of my size, people think that's they make the assumptions. Only, yeah, that's the only eating disorder I could possibly ever have. And so a lot of people in the pro-Anna community come for me and say, you know, I owe people with real eating disorders an apology. I'm lying. I'm hurting so many people. And to see all that thrown at Tess Holiday was just like really hard. Yeah. And for those who don't know Tess Holiday, she's a plus size model, right? Yeah. She's a plus size model. She's actually my size, like as far as like clothing size and stuff. So that made it even harder. It wasn't just like, oh, this much bigger person is going through it or like this smaller fat person is going through it. It's like, no, this person who is my exact size as far as like pant and dress and shirt and everything is also struggling with atypical anorexia and now is getting like a huge backlash. Yeah, like we like to think that we live in an enlightened age when it comes to mental health. I mean, the conversation is definitely there and it's definitely better than it used to be but it's very clear when you look at stuff like like Tess Holiday that what happened to her like we still have a long ways to go yeah definitely even with like how they put it down on insurance so that insurance will pay it's just yeah. so ridiculous 
Um, when you were a kid and you were getting bullied, was it for your weight or like other things? So here's the thing. It was for my weight. It's always been my weight. But I look back at pictures of me, like even through high school, I'm like, I wasn't fat. I wasn't like super skinny either, but I definitely would not consider myself fat or even plus size at the time. Yeah. Um, but that was the narrative that got stuck with me, like all through like late grade school up till I dropped out in high school. And I was never bullied for necessarily being ugly or being dumb or anything like that. It was just like, you're fat. And that's like the worst thing a person could be. First of all, I'm sorry. That fucking sucks. And kids are trash. (laughs) (laughs) I worked as an elementary teacher for a while. And Uh, I was shocked by some of the things that kids say to other kids. Um, But I wanted to talk a little bit about the language surrounding, you know, fatness and eating disorders. Because I have thin privilege. Like, I've never been overweight. And I I can't even pretend to know what it's like. And I don't... I'm coming to this from a very like uninformed standpoint like i don't know what is considered okay language to use like what's offensive and what's not um like can you talk about how you got to how you started using the term fat and what it means to you yeah so i think it's important to just say that it's different for every like bigger person in a bigger body some people are really not okay with the word they don't identify as it they don't use it So there's that big variant. Uh, But as someone who also identifies as queer, I kind of, for people who don't get it, I'd like to use that as an example, knowing it's not a perfect example, but it's pretty close where a lot of people in the LGBT community, you know, are uncomfortable with the weird queer because it used to be a slur. It was not like an okay thing to call someone. And now you have people like me who are like, no, my sexuality is queer. Like if I'm given a doctor's like form, that's the box I tick for sexuality. And I kind of see fat as that way. It's me taking a really negative word and being like, well, no, yeah, you're right. I am fat. Congratulations. You have like functioning eyeballs. Um, (laughs) That is my body type. And I'm not going to let you use it as like a weapon against me anymore because it should just be a neutral term. But also, but again, that is going to be vastly different from like fat person to fat person or even like being in the LGBTQ community, like different terms mean different things to different people. But for me, it's really been a, for my eating disorder recovery. Yeah. It's okay to say that I am fat and that I might be fat for the rest of my life because I'm still a good person. I can still do what I want to do and like add to this world and do all the things. So it was a big part of my like recovery. Have you encountered any backlash in treatment <laughs> you you look like you already have a lot you want to say about this so this last time there was a very fat phobic patient and it was hell until they discharged and it was very frustrating and heartbreaking to feel like I wasn't being supported by my treatment team or by the treatment program sometimes it felt like I was being gaslit which is horrible to say. What was an example of that? I felt like when I was saying like, oh, this person does this, this, and this, and I think it's because of my size because I've been watching them and they don't do it to anyone else. And this is, you know, we're all white, unfortunately. Uh, White people have more access to treatment than people of color. Um, It's a very sad, heartbreaking reality. And so kind of looking around and being like, okay, so we're all white. We're all women. What is the difference? 
um, that makes me specifically different from everyone else. Oh, I'm the only fat person and eating disorders are inherently fat phobic. Yeah. So for a long time, it was, is this all in my head? Am I being overdramatic? And I felt like people in my treatment team were like, not validating what I was going through. I was like, I think this person is doing this because of this, this, and this, and their microaggressions, and I'm dealing with them every day. And I felt like I was being expected to be the bigger person in a situation where I shouldn't have to be the bigger person. Yeah. Obviously, HIPAA makes it super complicated. You don't want to violate that person's rights to privacy. And like, I would never want to do that. But the lack of support I felt, not only as a fat person going through that, but also as like a disabled person in treatment with like chronic pain and chronic illnesses was horrible. Like absolutely, in my opinion, unacceptable. And it was really frustrating to be like, I need help. I'm here because my hair is falling out and my nails are broken and my skin is dry and cracked and bleeding. And I'm so tired. And those are just the physical signs. Yeah, like I'm having all these physical signs and also like I can't function because of this eating disorder. So I need help. And that's why I'm here and why I quit my job and like, you know, ask my parents to help financially support me to come here. And now I'm dealing with all this and I kind of just have to keep dealing with it because if I just leave treatment early, then it was all for nothing and I'm not going to get better. But it's like really shitty to make any person deal with stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, oh God, that makes me so angry. It's like getting to treatment is hard enough in and of itself. And so for you to get there and then be faced with this whole new set of challenges, which probably isn't a new set of challenges for you. It was for the first time, I think, in treatment. Okay. Um, I'd never really had an issue before. And for some reason, this time with this program, it was just like, it was, I think it was really hard because I think, you know, everyone on my team was thin. And privilege makes people uncomfortable. When I first started talking about like white privilege, it made me feel icky, even yeah. though I'm, I'm very white. I'm like pretty much as white as you can get. Um, <laughs> but it makes you feel icky when someone's addressing you and saying you have privilege. Like, I think my first reaction is like, no, that feels like I'm a bad person. You, you kind of work with it more and you're like, okay, no, I just have privilege. Like I don't deal yeah. with shit because of the color of my skin. And I don't think anyone in the program except for maybe like a couple of people were at a point as staff members where they could be like yeah I don't deal with shit because of my body size Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's where we had a constant disconnect of you're telling me to build a tolerance to it but as a thin person that's not okay I would never tell like a person of color like oh you need to build tolerance to racism that's so yeah. inappropriate. So incredibly it's inappropriate. Like people get so scared by privilege, but it's just something that we all have. Right. Well, and I think it's also important to point out that fat phobia and racism, both horrible things, both totally different as far as history yeah, and of things course. of that. And also like fat phobia is racist because of the history of it. Um, I could do a whole class on it, but you know, it's, it's so shitty regardless. But also, like, it's important to point out that there are differences between systemic racism that we have in America and then, like, fatism that people face on a day-to-day basis. But both suck and both should not be, like, it just shouldn't be happening in a treatment program that is treating eating disorders. 
Did you almost feel like you had to educate the people who are like educating you? All the time. Like all the time. God. On a regular basis, I would go home at night and being like, I'm going to sign my 72, which is for people who don't know where you sign a paper and saying like in 72 hours, you were leaving the program against yeah. medical advice, but you sign it, you give insurance a couple days to figure everything out and then you leave. And I had to really be like in the mindset of, okay, right now it's really valid to have all this anger because I'm being hurt and I feel like I can't trust my team and I'm being invalidated, but I need to give myself like 24 hours. And if I still want to sign my 72 in 24 hours, I'll do it. Yeah. Uh, because I hit that point so many times and it really ended up being the people, the other clients there that kept me from signing it, which is really wonderful and heartwarming and also really sad that it was other eating disorder patients. Yeah. Keeping me there and motivating me instead of like my therapist and dietitian and psychiatrist and all the fun people that are being paid to help me. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. It shouldn't be that way. So you've been in treatment since you were 19, you said? That was the first time you went? Yeah. Have you found that it's gotten at least like a little better over the years? Or do you find it to just be a constant uphill battle? I think it's uphill, but there's like little breaks in between, if that makes sense. Um, definitely an improvement in just like people acknowledging that this is a thing. I think the first time I went to treatment, I was so terrified because this was what? 2013, I was terrified to even like bring it up as an idea to my family because I wasn't thin. Uh, I'd been doing it since I was 14. Um, and like by doing it, do you mean like, like the behaviors, restricting, restricting yeah. starving, um, obsessively counting, doing all the things yeah. um, and seeing that, you know, diet culture is very prominent in my family, especially in the women and like disordered eating. And but still being afraid to be like, yeah, this is an issue because I was so thin. And every time I've gone to treatment, it's gotten better and better with like the amount of education that they have and the amount of research that is being done. But it's not It great. shouldn't be your responsibility. Yeah, educate. it's not great by any means, but I see it getting better. But also like it's still for anyone in the situation really shitty to be like, yeah, it's getting better, but it still sucks while I'm here. Like, yeah. what are your thoughts on the health at every size movement? Because they were starting to preach that in treatment when I was there. And I know it upset a lot of people. I think it depends on the day for me. I, in general, I think it's a really great thing because I think it's true for a lot of people. Health can happen at any size. Honestly, hated when they taught it because I got to sit in a room where people, not their personal fat phobic beliefs, but their eating disorders, fat phobic beliefs were very loud and very vocal. And I was expected to sit through the class and just listen to all that and listen to other people say like, oh, but it's so unhealthy and it's so bad to be fat. And, you know, you, you can't live long, like, you know, just all the horrible, um, thing. And you're sitting there just like, excuse me. And I'm me. sitting there with my own eating. They're all, they're like, they're echoing my own eating disorder and it's extra weight because I am actually fat. And I would be frustrated because it felt like I was taking an education role of, well, actually there's this, this, and this, because, you know, the dietitian or whoever was leading the group wasn't in my opinion, being forceful enough with it because I yeah. think 
I was always very open about these conversations have to happen because they're valid and they're incredibly important to eating disorder treatment. But as a fat person in the room, I need to be able to leave and set a limit and say, I've had enough of this. I'm going to excuse myself. You can keep talking about it because this conversation is really important, but it is more damaging to me as someone who already believes in health at every size and knows all about it to keep sitting here. And that was where the disconnect would happen a lot with the team, not even necessarily the other patients. Um, Because I had conversations with other patients of, you know, I'm not mad at you. I recognize it's your eating disorder and you need to have these conversations because you're not going to get better if you don't. But I have to remove myself from my own like mental health. Um, I don't, I don't hate you. I love you very much (laughs) as like a fellow person at the center, but I have to like do this to protect myself. And so that was always really frustrating. Like, I'm so glad they teach it. It needs to be taught, but it was hard to sit there and be in the room when it was being taught. Also though, I think it can be not in its core, like people who truly look at the core of what health at every size is, but people who like to take it to social media, make it a social media thing, make it like a hashtag, can kind of make it kind of ableist of health at every size, but you know, health isn't necessarily the same for everyone. Like I- Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so I'm born with a heart defect. So technically, if you wanna get really technical, I'll never be healthy. I was born with a defect. Um, I have chronic illnesses. I have an autoimmune disease that I was born with. Okay, that's not healthy. That's me being ill. So a part of my acceptance of that, which is also very heartbreaking to be in your 20s and find yourself too sick to get out of bed because you're so sick from like this invisible disease, you know, or growing up going to the cardiologist every year because you might have to have open heart surgery someday. Like health just isn't necessarily always possible for people in the disability community. And so I love health at every size. I think it's great, but people definitely take it and warp it and abuse it. And so I'm always, when it's taught, I'm always hesitant going in on how it's going to be taught. Cause I don't think the principles are bad. I think how it's taught can be bad. And that's why when it's taught in treatment centers, I'm always like kind of sitting back and observing. I'm like, okay, so how's it being taught? Cause this can be really beneficial or really damaging. And just kind of, I kind of just have to hold my breath and wait and see. Because health can be such a, a subjective term. Right, right. You know, like, what are we even talking about when we say health? You know, are we talking about being, like, a perfect person, quote unquote? Like, physically, mentally? Like, are we talking about strictly weight? Like, what are we talking about here? I think it depends on the context, for sure. Right, which is why I'm always like, this is a great thing to teach. 100% support it. But how are you going to teach it? Because that's when it can get lost. Uh, getting so... Yeah warped is the word I keep saying because it's the core is still the same but people take it and do whatever they want with it yeah for you like I just have a lot of respect for you for going through treatment and like having to be in treatment while also educating these people who are supposed to be taking care of you it sounds exhausting um I'm happy that you're finally done my question I guess is like how are you taking care of yourself right now? Like what, 
is the next step for you in terms of treatment? Yeah. So like I said, when I first, when we first started talking, I'm in IOP. Unfortunately, again, coming back to the trauma thing, dealing with a lot of trauma that I, it wasn't even like it was a big thing while I'm treatment dealing with like fat, the fat phobia in the treatment program, but it was bringing up like past trauma from being on a fat people hate website and being blasted and doxxed and being bullied all through my life and feeling like, okay, well, I can't trust my team with all these really traumatic like emotions that are happening because they're not supporting me in this. Like they, it feels like to me that they don't have my back. So Mm -hmm. I cannot process this. I need to like stuff this down and like kind of put it in the back of my brain and I'll deal with this in IOP is kind of like what I had to do because it didn't feel safe to talk about. So now I'm home (laughs) and I'm dealing with all the feelings and I actually caught myself crying last night from what I'd gone through in PHP. And that was like a, well, this sucks, like so much better physically eating disorder is like recovery wise is doing good. But now I have all this stuff that I couldn't talk about from treatment. Yeah. I couldn't talk about. Um, And now I kind of feel bad for my IOP team because I'm like, hey guys, we have trauma to process. <laughs> I just like, picture you rolling up in a big old truck, like the trauma truck. Yeah, I will. had my first appointment with someone on my team and I was like, so I have new trauma. And she was like, okay. Like, I think it threw her off that I just came out and was like, we have trauma to go through. <laughs> because I'm sure it wasn't on like, you know, my file. Um, she has a lot of trauma to go through because I just wasn't talking about it. I just wasn't letting myself go there. Yeah. And I feel like trauma is something that we all experience to some degree, but I think it's something that we need to deal with our whole lives, you know, like whether it's residual trauma from our childhood or trauma, new trauma, like the trauma you faced in treatment. Unfortunately, it's like we're going to, some of us will be dealing with trauma our whole lives. And it's just like, how do you keep it from killing you? Yeah. Well, and the really, I think, shitty thing for anyone with any level of trauma is it comes is sometimes it comes out of nowhere and you're like, Oh, I thought I was over this. And now I'm not. I am. I think a good example is I was in a car accident when I was younger. I was hit by a drunk driver, very traumatic, very, everyone in my family understands like Rachel and her sister have trauma from this because it was very traumatic um, for the two of us that were in the car accident. Um, but I was like, oh, I was 11, so I'm fine. But then last, I think it was last year or the year before I got in another accident. It was much smaller. Like someone just T-boned me barely. Um, and I was like, oh, it's fine in the moment. And then driving down the street later that day, someone turned into the lane next to me and I screamed. And I was like, whoa, this has not been an issue for a long time. And now all of a sudden it's come back up. And like, I have all this anxiety with driving like it's something I thought I had gotten over and processed I got my driver's license like I thought it was good and then all of a sudden it was back in my face at like 25 26 and I was like wait a minute this is supposed to be done with like but trauma doesn't work that way like our brains are so good at protecting us from that kind of thing by stuffing the trauma deep inside somewhere secret and then 
later it comes out and you're like, holy shit, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Like, why am I suddenly so scared that a car is turning into the lane next to mine? Yeah. Oh, because you sense. were T-boned as a child in a very traumatic drunk driving accident. Like, Yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit, I kind of wanted to talk about your queer identity yeah. and how it intersects with your fatness and your eating disorder. Yeah, I mean, I think I am very blessed in the sense that I am a very feminine person as far as my gender identity. And so being a little bit, being fat doesn't necessarily take away from that. Something I've noticed you know, on social media, following and communicating with people who are queer, fat, and have disordered eating or eating disorders, you know, when they are maybe non-gender conforming or they're more masculine, like that gets taken away from them because of their fatness. And that is just something that is so shitty. And then there's this element of no matter what your sexual identity, if your family is not accepting of it or affirming of it, it just adds this layer of, well, something's wrong with me. And I already know that something's wrong with me because I'm fat. And this is just like an extra layer on top of that. And just like kind of, for me, it, it just kind of builds up of I'm, I'm defected. Something is wrong with me. I'm, yeah. you know, we've talked about both of us growing up in conservative white churches, growing up Christian churches. Yeah. And yep. <laughs> And I was wondering when this would come up. I've I was so excited, waiting. honestly, <laughs> when we started talking about it in treatment. I think it was literally the second day I was there. And I was like, someone who understands. Um, yeah, big time. Because, you know, I I have a ministry degree, ironically enough. Um, and so I have purposely sat in classes, you know, where they talk about the New Testament and all the Bible verses. And I've listened to fellow students and fellow fellow people in the same major tell me I'm going to hell and that I'm basically a pedophile. Um, so like I brought that on myself to a point and I'm totally fine with that. But it's also just really nice when you find someone who's like, yep, I was raised in the church. It wasn't necessarily a negative experience, but now that I'm trying to be my own person, it's really toxic. Like, yeah. Um, and I don't know your experience hundred percent, but I was so happy when we started talking about it, I think randomly, I think it was because we were talking about the coffee they service in the morning with breakfast being like church coffee quality. Yes. <laughs> church coffee and treatment center coffee are the same thing. They're basically the same thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's just, you know, you get told and these people, at least in my experience, were kind of a core of who I am. They helped raise me to be the person I am. I have a lot of honorary grandmas from the church that are waiting for me in heaven, but they also were this thing of, well, if you're a good Christian, you won't be mentally ill. Um, if you're a good Christian, then you're straight, you know, good Christian girls don't swear. They don't have tattoos. They don't wear, you know, low cut shirts and show off their boobs. Like I like to, I think for me, the struggle is I'm everything that I was told good Christian girls aren't. And so it's funny because the eating disorder just finds a way to take advantage of every little insecurity you have and make it part of the eating disorder to strengthen it. Hmm. And so for me, it's been a lot of, okay, well, I am a queer person. I'm bisexual. My favorite words are fat and fuck. I <laughs> am very 
loud and opinionated, which is also something I was taught Christian girls are not supposed to be. Just girls in general, right? Right. For me specifically, though, it's like women aren't supposed to be in roles of leadership. Yeah. And so me being loud and opinionated and wanting to not just teach Sunday school was just like a big thing that I struggled with all through, you know, high school and everything. And then I came out of queer and it was like, yep, definitely feel alienated from a lot of the church people that helped raise me and like literally changed my diapers. It's just been very hard. (laughs) How old were you when you first came out and what was that like? So here's the thing. I pretty much knew when I was 19 that I was not straight. Um, So the first time I went to treatment, there was this staff member working there who was a woman and was on a little more on the masculine size. Um, She wore like a tie every day. And I was like, I really want to like kiss her and make out. And I'd be like, no, 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 you're straight. (laughs) You're a Christian. You're straight. No, 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 no. You don't. You're just, you've been here for three months and you haven't seen the light of day and blah, blah, blah. And then I went back, I went back the same year or the next year to the same program and she was there again. And I was like, no, you're definitely attractive to her. You're definitely not straight. Um, So treatment made me gay, but no, Um, (laughs) not really. That's going to be the name of the episode. It should be, but that was kind of like, I was accepting myself as a fat person and being who I want to be, not who my family wants me to be. I can have the piercings and the tattoos and do all the things and still be like a good person, which is something I struggled with. And then when I went to college at 22, I just found myself in a, at a Christian school, but that was very liberal and inviting and affirming and accepting and found myself with people that were affirming and accepting. And I was in IOP down there. And there was another person in IOP who was a patient at the time who I also had a huge crush on. And I was like, no, you're definitely like bi, bare minimum, you are bisexual. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? This is the best time to come out because I can do it over a phone call. And if it goes wrong, (laughs) I can hang up and mute the phone and I don't have to answer when they call back. So I came out, I went home that weekend and then came out over the phone (laughs) because it was safer and it didn't go bad and it didn't go good. It's just basically how I'll put it. But so I, I knew for a good couple of years before I actually like came out. It Um, sounds like it. It sounds like, you know, just the whole year in between treatment stays, like you, you met that staff person and you thought you had a crush on her and then you came back a year later and you're like, okay, yeah, definitely buy at least. Yeah. Bare minimum. Yeah. And it's been a process of just being open about it. I think, you know, we're taught that it's a, even if you have these thoughts and feelings for someone of the same sex, it's wrong and you need to like not act on them. But that's so toxic and harmful. Like it's, I've only seen that doing that hurt other people. And for me, that's not what Christianity is. So, but that's a whole nother thing that we, can, that we could dive into for hours. Oh my God. I also want to hang out with you outside of this sometime and just like talk about all this shit for hours. Yes. <laughs> I have a car. I'm just going to put it out there. Oh, hell yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think... I was raised in the same environment that you were, obviously, but I've been outside of it for so long that 
when I hear about things like like homosexuality being frowned upon, it sounds so alien to me like oh my god why would like why you would be you must be messed up if you would frown on homosexuality which is like weird because it used to be the opposite right like anyone who was queer or whatever was like going to hell and they were the weird ones and so it's kind of really interesting how that's kind of shifted for me yeah well and even for me you know I've stayed I still consider myself a Christian I still love that I got a degree in ministry I don't regret it But it's definitely made me look at not just when it comes to like the LGBT community, but also when it comes to issues of systemic racism and gender equality and all these things may really look at the church as a whole and not as a religion, but as like an institution and be like, okay, where is the disconnect to the Jesus and the new, like the early church that I've been studying for three, four years and like where we are now, because there is a huge disconnect and it's kind of like I hear old people in the older generations saying the church is dying and it's like yeah because you won't pass it on to the next generation because you know we're going to take it and go in a completely different direction because it's not it's full of it sometimes for me it feels like it's full of more hate than love and that it's the exact opposite yeah I mean I, I wouldn't disagree with you it's just interesting how you can have all these outside issues and traumas and the eating disorder will swipe it right up and be like let's use this to motivate because if you like do this behavior if you don't eat maybe you'll feel better about the fact that your grandparents don't accept you as a queer person yeah so when I look at you I see like an advocate like you are an advocate not just for yourself but for others and I really respect it about you but I know it's taken you a lot of hard work to get to that point and it's not over yet um I was just gonna ask as we wrap up like how what kind of things helped you get to this point and how what would you say to someone who is maybe in the same situation and they feel like they can't be an advocate for themselves So I think something for me, and this might not work for everyone, a big thing that keeps me advocating is like the person that's going to come next after me and the thought of them going through the same thing. It actually like breaks my heart. Like I can't bear to think about another fat person going to treatment and dealing with the fat phobia while trying to get treatment from an eating disorder. Well, no matter what the eating disorder is. Um, We had people in bigger bodies in the program when I left and like, I wanted to sob when I left because, you know, they didn't have the same eating disorder as me, but they're still putting up with the same shit I had to put up. And like, I didn't want to leave them because I felt like it wasn't fair that they had to keep dealing with it. And so that's always been a motivation for me for like speaking out. Yeah, I might have to deal with it and I might survive it, but I can't guarantee like the next person that deals with like fat phobia or just hate for their sexuality and their gender identity or anything like they might not be able to deal with it as well as I can and that's not okay so that is my big motivation of like I have to make this better for the person that comes after me because I cannot bear thinking of even just a complete stranger going through this like I can't deal with it um but also like seeing the other side of things if I wouldn't have continue to strive towards like recovery with not just the eating disorder, but mental health. I wouldn't have graduated college. 
I wouldn't have met my bestest friends that I now talk to on the daily. I wouldn't be able to be a part of, you know, I love kids. I have a lot of honorary nieces and nephews. I have nanny kids. I wouldn't be able to be part of their life if I was so sick and stuck in my disorder. Like I wouldn't, all these little small things that really make life worth living for me, I wouldn't have if I wouldn't like go through the hard stuff and like keep pushing through, even when it is really hard. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I'm going to (laughs) cry. (laughs) Oh God. I'm so proud of you. And I think the church needs more people like you and also just the world in general needs more people like you. Cause like you're doing really hard work and don't you shake your head at me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I know I'm putting you on the spot and I'm making you feel super awkward, but yeah, I, I just really love what you're putting down. I wish more people could know that. God, I'm so emotional now. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I mean, I think that's a perfect place to wrap up, but uh, do you have anything else you wanted to say before we do? Anything we might have missed? No, I'm just really glad I got to talk to you. Sam! I've missed you so much. I know. We'll hang out soon. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Where can people find you if they want to follow you and uh, subscribe to your content. Yeah. I mean, I just try to stay in conversation on social media, so I can't promise that I'm a huge content maker, but basically anything, any social media, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, you can find me at Raylan T. So R-A-I-L-Y-N-N-T. Also, I can't remember if we said your name at the beginning or not. I think I did. Rachel. Okay, I'm I'm like losing my mind. I don't know. It's been an hour. It's fine. (laughs) Well, uh, I love you so much. And this has been amazing. Like, I feel like I barely have to ask anything. You've just been such a great guest. And I'm really glad that the listeners get to hear what you have to say. Well, thank you. I'm just so excited. I got to like see your face. So hell yeah. All right. (laughs) I will let you go now and I'll text you and we'll hang out soon. Yes. All right, girl. Good night. (laughs) Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pickles and Vodka. If you could relate to anything we talked about, you can follow the podcast at Pickles and Vodka Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook by typing in Pickles and Vodka Podcast. You can also email me at picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com if you have any stories or if you just want to say hi. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Stay safe.